0: And we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Hello, Fascination. Welcome to the show. Now, there are some people who are so unique, so novel, that their style is difficult to describe because the genre they occupy has not been invented yet. Other people are so ubiquitous that they seem to occupy every creative space all at once and are therefore impossible to categorize. Tonight's guest is one of the rare people who is both. He defies definition and is the definition all at once. His name is Jamie DeWolf. He is an actor, filmmaker, writer, live event producer, arts educator, circus ringmaster, slam poet, Scientology denouncer, MC, vaudevillian, comedian, Scorpio, and founder of the prolific live show, Tourette's Without Regrets, which is now known as the Ruckus and Rumpus Revival. Now, Jamie, I feel like this is the type of conversation that could go anywhere, and I want to start it off in a weird place. Let's do it right off the bat here, Jamie. I'm going to tell you a crazy story. Now you've always been on my short list of people to interview. And coincidentally, a couple weeks back while interviewing Doug Mungin yep. about the Skid Row, he's kind of a Skid Row historian now, and that came about in a weird way because I was watching a Netflix documentary about the Cecil Hotel, and he was on there and just kind of killed it as this kind of strange niche expert. And so I had him on the show, and then randomly, he mentioned that he emceed for you for Tourette's Without Regrets, which I guess is called uh, Ruckus and Rumpus Revival, and that's how this came about. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's kind of a crazy little world like that. Now, is his, does his story check out? Jamie,
1: his story checks out. Yeah, he was um, one of the the co-hosts of Tourette's Without Regrets* early on in the days, and was also a, an interpretive dancer in our worst sex ever contest, <laughs> which is still a perennial annual favorite. So he's he's a great, great, really multifaceted character. Like the guy is like a PhD, but is also hilarious. Is an amazing performance poet. And it's, it's just a really, really, really fun guy. So I would put him up there in terms of just like a lot of the, the various characters that I have in my life where we sort of veer from hard hitting, grab you by the lapels, dead serious, grim, hard, hardcore reality to wild comedy. And they can all be encapsulated in the same person. So I think coming up from the Poetry Slam scene, is that there really was wasn't as much of a division in terms of who is allowed to be funny and serious at the same time? We were just like we're all strange mutants, so go for it, do whatever you want.
0: Yeah, I mean, I would definitely think that there should be limitations on who's allowed to be funny because I've given people the, uh, you know, <laughs> the, the liberty to be to be funny, and it didn't quite work out. And then I'm always the one who has to clean up the mess. So I, I you're you brave. You're brave, Jamie, is what I'm saying to you. So now, now your name's Jamie DeWolf, which is a great name, by the way. But it's not your real name. That's so disappointing. You were born Jamie Kennedy. Uh, Now, you changed it. Is it because of the other actor, Jamie Kennedy? Is that what went on there? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, actually, my last name has actually changed like two times in my life. And
1: so my last name always kind of felt like a strange artifice. Anyways, because it's like, you know, your mom gets remarried. Here's a new name. New you. And the Jamie Kennedy thing was very specifically, even these days, when I go to a bank or I go to an airport or whatnot, they still are like, are you that Jamie Kennedy guy? And I'm like, no, no, I'm not. I'm like, you don't know anything about his career now. It's just that he had a TV series at one pivotal time in MTV. And then everybody just remembered his name. Partly because I think it's the name has a nice ring to it. great name. It's a nice, easy to remember name. And when it got to the point that me and him were literally performing at the same venues within a month of each other, and then he was getting asked on the radio if he was related to L. Ron Hubbard. I was like, all right, this is just stupid. Like, I don't need to be in a horse race with this guy for the rest of my life. So I just took my mom's maiden name, which itself DeWolf was also a, a, a last name that was created to help my family escape from Scientology because their last name was Hubbard. So my grandfather, L. Ron Hubbard Jr., changed his name to Elron DeWolf, and so that's where DeWolf came from. So me taking on the name was even a larger, larger significance even to me and myself and my family because it was it was like its own cover story that had its own history to it. Which so a lot of people miss out, and instead they want to ask me about this very mediocre B-level comedian who is his <laughs> son of the mask. That was like. Yeah, I don't really want to have to be thinking about this guy for the rest of my life. (laughs) Nor do I think that he would particularly enjoy if our careers were just sort of paired neck and neck. And I wish I would have changed my name sooner because the frustrating part was that you spent so many years performing and touring and doing all of this madcap activity, Mm -hmm. you know, and then at some point, you just kind of have to slide and become somebody different. Yeah, and some folks thought that, I was embracing it like I'm a Wolverine, I'm a lone wolf, I'm a, like I was a rapper taking on the tailors, I was like, nah, it's my mom's, my mom's maiden name, it's just some Scottish, Scottish French shit, you know, that's where it's from. Well, I do want to,
0: I do want to pause you for a second here, man, because I actually love Jamie Kennedy, I don't know that he, I would call him a B-level comedian, the the Jamie Kennedy experiment's a really funny show, Um, but here's what's messed up about it, is his name is actually James. And he changed his first name uh-huh. to Jamie, but you're an actual Jamie, right? I'm an actual Jamie. Yeah, I would actually love—I would love to meet Jamie Kennedy
1: at some point because he must have some sort of inkling that there's some other guy out there, and I think that we would actually get along just fine. I've seen his heckler documentary, and I don't mean to trash him because I don't really know Brilliant. him. And in some respects, it was just always a frustrating rivalry <laughs> because we were both like white. <laughs> relatively on the ginger spectrum, <laughs> fellas, and I was like, "What the hell? Why do I got to be in this race with you?" And and you, he, he won. You know, he won. He got an MTV first, so it's like, all right, you win. I mean, when I filmed for HBO for Death Poetry Jam, the first time I did it, I was Jamie Kennedy, and then the next time that I filmed for HBO, I was I was realizing I may need to change my name. Because I was backstage with Dave Chappelle and Lauren Hill. And so when they said Jamie Kennedy, they think it's the guy that they know right. from MTV <laughs> instead of me from Oakland, who fucking earned his way to get on HBO, god damn it. It's like, it's like a ghost stealing your moment and your work by just being themselves. And so I, I think that me and him could have a rather entertaining conversation about the entire thing. Because, yeah, he got asked on a radio station. We performed he, performed, he did his album taping at the San Jose Comedy Improv one month, and I performed there and did stand up and storytelling literally the month later. And so people were super confused as to which one was which. And even the, the people who worked at the improv were confused like, why is Jamie Kennedy coming back? He was just here. Did, he, did his taping not go well? You know, what's going on with right. that? And then he got asked on the radio um, his relation to L. Ron Hubbard because he had a lazy interviewer who probably just put his name in Google. Uh And he made a bunch of smarmy jokes about how rich he was from Scientology and stuff like that. And I always wondered what his cognizance was of why the hell they were asking him that and if he himself had a growing realization that he was – if I kept going down that path he would unfortunately start to get tagged with a whole bunch of Elron Ron Hubbard Scientology nonsense. So I did him a favor, goddammit. You know, he owes me, instead of Scientology, he owes me a check. If you're listening, Jamie Kennedy...
0: Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to set this up, because this is what's great, man, is I really had this as an offhanded comment. You gave me five minutes on Jamie Kennedy. This is, I really, I struck a nerve here, man, and I love it. Like, you really kind of got into it. I hope you put together a, a little piece and you do a performance piece on uh, on this Jamie Kennedy thing. Um, I mean, it's it's kind of crazy because... My doppelganger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, you know, it is weird because in a weird story, I had this friend from college who uh, I kind of lost touch with. Uh, he's kind of an Guy, but I remember he came out. He came out here to LA to do some acting, and I've been looking for him for like the past three or four years or something like that. And then I got the bright idea to look at some of our mutual friends and see if they're on Facebook to see if their friends were his friends. And it turns out, like he changed his his name, and he's been you know acting under a totally different name, which is why I haven't been able to find him. So, LA is a very st- strange place. Entertainment's a strange world because this happens all the time, uh, and it's just a kind of an interesting thing. Uh, but you know, you mentioned a couple of interesting things here. So, first of all, I want to tell people who you are, right? So, from your website, you're a performer, filmmaker, writer, live event producer, arts educator, and circus ringmaster from Oakland. Now, to me, that sounds like a very sterilized version of who Jamie DeWolf is, uh, because because I, I kind of jumped into the deep end on you and have been, uh, kind of immersed in, in everything that you do. That doesn't even, in my mind, really even explain who you are. Um, but I, I'm very curious, like how you would describe yourself. Like if you were looking at yourself from above and you saw this guy doing all these performances, I'm curious how you would kind of describe what you do.
1: Hmm. That is a fine question. The frustration I've always had is I don't really think I fit easily in any one box. I mean, throughout one week, literally throughout a week, I will teach a class to high school youth and that night go and host a vaudeville wild circus with meat flying around and burlesque and fire performances. And then the next day go and shoot a documentary about, diabetes and be filming folks with limbs who've been amputated, you know, in one week. And that's happened multiple hundreds of times throughout the years. And I sort of flip from one mode to another. And to other people, that's flabbergasting. They don't really understand how all of those things can coexist. I think for a lot of people that if you do circus or vaudeville or comedy or a lot of the crazy theatrical stuff that we do, they sort of assume that you're always in this rock star maniac mode you know, that it's just like throwing mountains of cocaine and screaming at everybody in the supermarket (laughs) or something like that. That's not
0: your process. That's not how it works. Uh, uh. (laughs)
1: Um, And that, that could, a lot of the shows that I put on can be very wild. They're very interactive. We encourage a lot of mayhem and I really push a lot of different envelopes. Um, I particularly want a very confrontational interactive show, not confrontational in an aggressive way, but I mean in terms of constantly reminding people that you are a part of this show, that this is not a voyeuristic experience. This is an experience that we're all a part of from the performer in the audience. That's why we have a catwalk that goes all the way in the audience. They created that at our venue just for our show because I was very insistent, like I want to be as close and in the face of the audience as possible. This is such a different level of engagement. And then past that, I mean, as a performer, I do comedy, I do storytelling, I do theater, I do acting, I do all different kinds of of aspects as a performer. And then as like a filmmaker, then I also direct and I shoot and edit a lot of my own projects as well. And so that also, it's like film mode and performance mode are very different. Performance mode is about a kind of intangible energy that you need to to tap into to be more alive, to be a larger, larger, more dynamic version of yourself. In some respects, almost like a best self, I think. that That's what we hope for when you get on stage. When you're doing film, it's almost the complete opposite. You need to know how to stand back and to be very precise and to be very polished and to move quickly and to navigate with a whole wide amount of you know, skill sets and talents and so forth when you're on set and trying to move quickly. And then when you're a film editor, it's all about your discipline and focus and having technical skills that are going to carry you through. And so I'm kind of switching through those all the time. I think in earlier years, it used to break my brain a lot more. Mm -hmm. And now I'm just like, okay, now we just we switch to this, you know, and so some folks who kind of ran around with me in one day will see these different sort of hats, come on and come off. And so as to how I view myself, I always just view myself as really just a performer and a filmmaker. And I usually just leave it as open as that. Um, one thing that I've, I've been really adamant about with a lot of performers that, that I work with is also reminding them that they are a performer, that they're not, not to get locked into your artistic genre because a break dancer is also an athlete. A break dancer is a performer, but they can get locked into this is what break dancing is. This is what I need to do for break dancing. This is the culture of break dancing. I need to dress like this. This is the music I listen to, et cetera. Like every little art genre has its own kind of mode and it has its own heroes and villains. And it has just its own different kind of set of, of ingrained rules to a degree. And, I just like to break those as much as possible. Which I can make for a
0: very confusing career. <laughs> <laughs> well, for sure. I mean, when I, cause I think about it, you know, when I look at what you do and everything, I mean, first of all, I love that you said that about breakdancing because I don't want to be pigeonholed into being a breakdancer. So just hearing your words is going to inspire me to, to move on to other things as well. That's fair. Uh, and, and I, when I look at what you do, you know, kind of, I do a lot of stuff with science and quantum physics is probably the weirdest way to describe how the natural world works. But it, it's it comes out of a need to explain seemingly weird events that coincide with other weird events that we all look around and don't really notice but happen on this this you know quantum level this very small tiny infinitesimal level. And in some ways I think, you know, after looking at everything that you're doing, there's there's a lot of interesting things going on here that uh, kind of make you who you are. And, you know, one of the things, and I have to admit that I kind of stumbled upon this late, so I, it was it was a, a great little um, vein of information that I wanted to talk about, but I kind of missed the fact, first on, that you were shaped by religion as a kid in an incredible way, like a very uh, intense way. Uh, how did that kind of come mm-hmm. about? Because it's very interesting, given your family's history, which we'll also get to. <laughs>
1: How did, how did that come about? That came about being born in a manger to a virgin
0: and a carpenter. It came about by, I mean, honestly. Its- well, let me take a step back because the way you're saying that makes me feel like it's a stupid question, which I realized the way I phrase it might have sounded that way. How did your family become so religious given your, given your family history? And then how did that shape you as a kid growing up?
1: Right. So my great-grandfather was L. Ron Hubbard who created Scientology. My grandfather was L. Ron Hubbard Jr., who was his first enforcer and right-hand man and also helped create Scientology. He was one of Scientology's first auditors. They had a huge falling out and went to war for pretty much the rest of their lives. And I grew up, though, with Junior. So I didn't understand what Scientology was when I was a kid at all. They kept that from us. Um, I knew that my L. Ron Hubbard was a science fiction writer, which I was very, very excited about. And he was actually one of my first childhood heroes. And my great aunt, who was also L. Ron Hubbard's daughter, would take me to bookstores. And she was a total nerd. She was total, total, like insane book nerd. And so she could just take me to bookstores and I would be in heaven when I was a kid and just be running around from books to books. And I was very proud that I could always find L. Ron Hubbard books. But anything about Dianetics or Scientology, we, we just didn't talk about. If I ever brought it up, they would sort of gently steer it towards science fiction. And that was what I understood. I was like, what's this Scientology? Honey, I think you mean science fiction. <laughs> yeah, right. That was their really sweet little way of, of kind of sidestepping that issue. I think that for my family, growing up, growing up in a family that had created their own religion, and then was now on the run from their religion is that my mother has said that Christianity was her protective shield to make sure and ensure that we would never become Scientologists and would stay as far away from Scientology as possible. But my mother was incredibly devout and she met my father when they were both on the path to become missionaries. And I grew up in a just a very hyper Christian childhood and for many years all the way up until probably about the sixth grade, I thought I was on the path to be a preacher. And I would save up my allowance and send it to missionaries who were witnessing the cannibals in the Congo. I've said that in a poem once or twice and people think I'm exaggerating, but it was (laughs) it was specifically specifically missionaries of cannibals in the Congo. I was like well they need my allowance (laughs) you know of all of the missionaries who need money They might get eaten. Right. So I would stuff them in envelopes and send it over. But I mean, I didn't even say a single cuss word until the sixth grade. And I would witness to people on the playgrounds. I would stand on street corners. I would pass out pamphlets about the impending Armageddon apocalypse. And um, I was a bit of a Bible scholar, a study uh, maniac. And I would ask a lot of difficult questions in Sunday school. As a Christian, as someone who was very devout was trying to understand it, and those questions and the answers that I got started to deconstruct Christianity and really led to some led to me coming out of the labyrinth of Christianity and realizing to my horror that the entire world had been basically built on this bedrock of these really really these really ingrained concepts that are so woven through our society that many of us just don't even think about them anymore of a binary culture of, of good and evil, black and white, God and Satan. There's, it's a monotheistic religion. Um, it's male dominated, you know, et cetera. All of the other, we don't need to talk about Christianity this whole episode, but I had to basically deprogram myself from this theology that had been really hammered into me as a kid, which led to a huge, split in the road in my relationship with my parents and also was coming about at the same time that I was starting to really understand who L. Ron Hubbard was as well and starting to ask difficult questions about him and really opening up different doors that people wanted to leave closed in our family history and so all those things sort of combined in a very combustive mix that has really been burning ever since I suppose so I mean religion has been such a dominant factor of the first part of my life and was such a painful part of it as well of uh, you know it's it's hard to explain to someone if someone has been in a cult they can understand what that's like when you start to come out of it and you're trying to shed an entire decade or more or a lifetime of of rules of the universe and having to relearn how those rules work it's it's hard to explain to someone how do you How do you come out of a point where you no longer think that you 're going to burn in hell in flames for eternity because you 're turning your back on this religion that was taught to you that the devil is not in your ear the devil is not whispering and making you do things that hell possibly is not real that the Bible was written by people and not a divine force in the sky that the entire society that America is built upon is maybe built on a lot of, of efficient rules for control versus divine intervention and so forth. And so then that led me to start asking other different questions and so on. How that's translated into a lot of my art, I mean, I find that, that the shows that I put on, Tourettes Without Regrets and the Ruckus and Rumpus Revival are, I mean, we laugh about it as a joke, but they're really like churches of individuality. You know, I use a lot of the same tropes that I learned as a Christian kid growing up, and and have become this mutant offshoot of a preacher. Right. <laughs> but we're but we're celebrating individuality. We're celebrating independent free speech and thought, and we're celebrating about what's unique about you. And instead of trying to, um, you know, homogenize everything into one degree. And also to, uh, to basically create a space where people are encouraged to just be their truest, most authentic, wild selves. And, um, you know, I grew up in a church where people were speaking in tongues and jumping out of seats and, <laughs> you know, twitching on the floor. And that was, that was, that was my religion that I grew up in. And it's still the winner right now. I mean, it's the one that is in the lead. And nearly every experience that we have as an America is, American is really filtered through that. And it's it's really important for people to be able to have some sense of detachment and be able to look at the filter of just American history and what it is to be an American and even in the context of the rest of the world and world history through that lens. Though I think I've resigned to the fact that I'm gonna die before I ever see an atheist president. Like that's just not gonna happen, you know. To I me, mean? we're just we're just stuck to this fucking suicide bomber. We're all handcuffed to this shit until the bitter end. It feels right. like.
0: Well, you know, I, I, what's funny is you know to go back to what I was saying before, so people don't think I'm a dope. I think it is actually very important to understand the the. Role that religion played in your family and your family's history. And I ask why your family became, I think they were evangelical Baptist or, or something along those lines. I went to an evangelical church yeah, uh, mm-hmm. with a friend. Um, I, had, I had a friend whose mom was very religious, and my grandmother was very religious. And I, I saw someone speak in tongues. And I'll never forget that moment because I was there with some other guy from my high school who'd gotten, you know, kind of suckered in. And we saw it happen, and I burst out laughing. I mean, I, 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 but everyone was silent, so my laughter was not only extremely loud, but then echoed through the halls, and then I immediately was quiet and shamed into <laughs> silence, so I'll never forget that moment, and it, it is a very <laughs> shocking thing to see, but I ask that because when I look at religions, you know, this is me personally, my grandmother was very religious, she was very Catholic, I just watched a documentary called The Keepers about the abuse in the Catholic Church, and I remember my grandmother sending mm-hmm. $20 a week to the Catholic Church, and I look back at that, and I'm like, what were you doing? And so to, to look at something as as insidious as, as Scientology. Now, they come after people who leave the, the faith, and they try to ruin people's lives. So it's a little different. Well, they're coming after you now. I, 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 I'm fine. What are you going to ruin? You're doing? next. Uh, yeah, it's fine. Tag
1: uh, your uh, That's it. uh,
0: It's fine. <laughs> uh, you know, cancel culture is really big. I'm sure I'm going to get nailed at some point or another. Uh, so I'm fine with it. Bring it on, David. Uh, but, you know, I think that when I, when I look at the reason why I look Scientology is so is so nefarious and then you look but you look at these other religions and they're just as bad. And so when I see that you went from basically your family went from Scientology to an evangelical faith, which is just as all encompassing. Which is, you know, in some ways very similar to Scientology. That's just, it's just strange to me. It kind of makes my brain short out. So I was curious why your family went in that direction. But it does seem to have shaped you in a very weird way because you and I are similar in one respect. And that, I believe you were kind of really drawn to the macabre sensibilities. I believe you, you quoted in one interview as saying, uh, you know, the books on the uh, on Antichrist, you had some Gorb- a book on uh, Gorbachev, how Gorbachev was the Antichrist. Uh, <laughs> yes. I, I remember reading stuff like that when I was in high school and college. Um, you know, I became. Oh, into- I love that book.
1: I wish I still had it. I wish I, I remember that book so vividly because I remember expounding on it at lunch. And I just remember now, yeah. in retrospect, all their faces, and I was like, the mark of the beast. I'm telling you, Wormwood, if you look in Revelation, was Chernobyl, and they're just like, it's, look, I don't need to hear about Gorbachev and the Antichrist, you know, and I'm just like going up, I'm like, don't you see? Don't you see? <laughs> <laughs> so that was me as a freshman in high school, like it went that long, dude, that far. Dude,
0: <laughs> staggering. Yeah, it is staggering. staggering. Well, because you wanted to be a preacher at some point, which is, you know, it's This whole thing's really interesting to me because I see this strange parallel. And I don't know if anyone's made this before. We skipped over a lot here. I want to go back to some of this. But, you know, this is an interesting point because I see this strange parallel between you and L. Ron Hubbard that is... You guys are really, in some ways, two sides of the same coin. You know, he was the Joker and you're Batman. You know, they're equal and opposite, but very similar in some way. You know what I mean? Because you've got, you know, from a physical standpoint, you've got his red hair. You, I think you and your brother are the only people who have L. Ron Hubbard's red hair, which is not insignificant from, you know, if I'm trying to make mm-hmm. this broad statement. I, you know, like like Gorbachev was compared to the Antichrist. I'm comparing you to L. Ron Hubbard. Um, you know, you've got the gift of gab. You've got an incredible way of speaking. You have a, a basis in religion, a persuading people, a, a faith. You know, you're a showman, a natural ringleader. You're a literal ringleader. You know, you guys mm. have a very similar skill set, in my opinion, but you mm. guys went in two completely opposite directions. Do you ever think about that parallel? I mean, despite the fact that you were looking, you know, obviously interested in him and he, in your family, but do you ever think about how similar that you guys really were? Yeah. <laughs> absolutely does that keep you up at night does that trouble you or does that are you okay no with no no a, a lot of it is a
1: very conscious choice i wanted to make art that was not fabricated I, A lot of the art and the poetry and the performance and stuff that i do is is very based in reality that i had a very difficult i i had a very difficult i always wrestled with different kinds of artists that would lie that would lie about themselves, lie about their art. I saw what charisma is, and I saw that, that how much of it is, is a sense of artifice. Mm-hmm. Elron was a pathological liar, and his entire career was based off his fictitious biography. And I don't need to lie to have an interesting life. Um, at at this point. And a lot of times I have a hard time trying to make my biography make sense because to other people, it doesn't make any fucking sense at all. I'm like, I'm a circus ringleader and a teacher and a film, you know, Mm -hmm. and they're just like, you sound like a ridiculous, but I mean, but those are true. The proof is in the pudding. I mean, it's like you can literally see all of those things and someone goes and digs around on my website, they'll see I do a a lot of these different kinds of facets. But I had a real allegiance to also to, to... Using those same kinds of skill sets to empower other people to tell their own stories, to give them a stage, to not use that skill set to make it all about one person, which is what El Ron was doing. I mean, all of Scientology does is it, it's basically a funnel that leads you into worshiping the almighty Elron Ron Hubbard, one of the greatest greatest men who have ever walked this earth i mean his his literal slogan that he's given himself is mankind's greatest friend just fucking amazing that's a great that's a great slogan yeah i love it i love it a humble humble fellow that one (laughs) and but i saw that there was a crossroads ahead of me very early on when i started doing a lot of performance and a lot of a lot of shows and I wanted to celebrate other people's talents and other skills and to make a space for people to come and express themselves and, and shine, right? Versus Scientology where it's like you take somebody's individuality and you try to rub off every little sharp edge that there is and then demand a gang of money from them and, and convince them that you alone have the answers. Mm-hmm. And I've been much more comfortable with ambiguity, with doubt. And I've spent decades at this point working with youth and performing in prisons and juvies and high schools and and to constantly trying to make a space and encourage and empower youth and so forth to move forward and, and tell their own stories and to find their own distinctive voice. Because I know what it was like getting in so much trouble for my writing when I was younger and getting kicked out of classes and schools and so forth. And so... I know how integral it is to have someone say, I'm not going to tell you what to write. I'm just going to make a space for it so that you can, I want you to do whatever you want to do to the absolute hilt. You know, I want you to do it in in full color and go full blast with it. So for me, in general, I think a lot of my career has been a rejection of what Elrond did with his life and has been a renunciation of that and I think that my show and and, and if someone comes to a has come to a live Tourette's without regrets um, an epic show they would see all of that it feels like church it feels like this wild celebration of comedy and sexuality and expression and dance and performance and to me, I'm, I'm creating what I think church should be, what it should feel like, where people, anybody from the community can get on that stage and just floor the whole room with whatever skill set that they have and celebrating that, celebrating our humanity versus using those same sort of tools to control people for either your own financial gain or your own worship of self. So there's, there's uh, I mean, everybody I perform and in, in crew with the the whole sort of Colt L. Ron Hubbard connection is sort of a running joke to us because I also am very adamantly try to be as humble as I can when I'm off stage even though I'm a weirdo moody ass artist um you know the, but I mean I don't I don't lie to people about my life I don't come up with with uh fictitious backstory I, I really wanted to be as real as I could be even as uncomfortable as that can can become.
0: No, that makes sense. I mean, you know, it's I think it's a fair parallel because even though you guys have very different approaches, you know, in some ways, the mm-hmm. end result is kind of very similar. Right. I mean, you are, you, as you mentioned, you're you're a reverse. I think in one quote, you're a reverse. You say you're uh, you're about being a reverse cult leader and you're naked about wanting to brainwash people for your own entertainment. You know, and it's like, yeah, and it's like, yeah, I get that. But I mean, it's still I mean, it's still you said you want to look like church It's still a religion. You know, I mean, it's there's there's a lot Mm. of interesting parallels that I think people are unaware that they're doing or they think that they're doing it in one. I mean, I'm sure L. Ron Hubbard thought he was doing good things for people and also lining his pocket, you know. Um, I don't know the I don't know his actual intentions, but I think it's an interesting parallel um, because in a lot of ways, as I was looking through your body of work, you know what's what's interesting is you, you kind of hit fame with uh, slam poetry, which is kind of an interesting thing. And as I was watching, as I was watching your body of work, like that seems to inspire the the cadence, at least the very least, uh, and the writing is all very similar to slam poetry, which. From what I understand, that's really where you found that freedom that you were looking for, the freedom mm-hmm. to write. Is that, what, what drew you to Slam Poetry specifically? It was the only open mic that wouldn't kick me
1: out. <laughs> they just gave me, a lo- they gave me low scores and hoped that I wouldn't show up again. A lot of it was that Slam Poetry that that world was open to any genre, and other types of open mics and performance veins were not. So a stand up comedy show, you gotta be making a punchline every thirty seconds. At least, you know, sometimes they'll sit there with a stopwatch. But mm-hmm. it's also not gonna shine upon if you decide to suddenly do a very dark and vulnerable piece or a hard hitting story about someone that you knew is going through a suicidal tailspin, you know, something like that. They'll look at you like you're having a nervous breakdown or a tailspin. And I always had a hard time trying to figure out how I could have all of these different aspects of myself survive in the same room uh, the part of me that is sort of a madcap jokester and has a very dark sense of humor contrasted with the, what I like to call my internal Hamlet, um, who is a melancholy, um, you know, mel- melancholy sad sack who also really wants to talk about really hard and rough subjects. Um, As someone who was incredibly suicidal when he was younger and has had so many friends die and go in and out of mental hospitals and so forth, that there are other things that I wanted to talk about versus just making jokes. And rap at the time was also um, was a very just very egotistical sort of art form to me when I was a teenager, because only the only rappers that I knew and the only rap that I was exposed to at that time was just all about bragging about how you were the baddest, the best, and, you know, you banged the most bitches and you did the most drugs. And it was, it's just like, that wasn't, there was no vulnerability at all. And I wasn't attracted to that, but I always loved lyricism and I loved writing and I loved jokes and I loved storytelling and slam poetry for whatever reason was the one Space where I saw all of those things coexist at the same time, coming from the same performers in the same night. The very first poetry slam I went to was the San Francisco Slam Finals in 1998. And I was floored, flabbergasted, because the poets were such rock stars. Some of them were absolutely hilarious, like thunderously funny. And then others were hard hitting, talking about leaving gangs and Um, struggling with their identity and surviving suicide attempts. And then they might come up and then do a hilarious piece next. Like there wasn't as much of a distinction about what you were allowed to do. And I roared to everybody that I dragged to that show. I said, I'm going to be on that stage in a year. And I was. And it was the one place that I had found where you were encouraged to, to be as loud as you could about, whatever you wanted to talk about, wherever you wanted to go. And you could flip up styles. And and so that was where I met a lot of my, you know, some of my best friends to this point at this day and some of the best people I think I've ever met in any other kind of performance world because and it is also just super naked. There's no tightrope. There's no music to hide behind. You literally got to go up in front of a crowded mobbed bar and in three minutes and ten seconds have to destroy that room. You have to get a standing ovation in three minutes and 10 seconds. And that is a, uh, quite a challenge. <laughs> so, so it was an amazing training and an incredible ninja school because it cut away a lot of the self-indulgence of academic poetry. It cut away a lot of the, the sort of sterile safety of your coffee open mic. It was like high octane, hard hitting. And some of those performers were some of the the most phenomenal heavyweight performers I've ever seen in my life. And I know a lot of people have like odd, weird connections on what they think about slam poetry, and it's it's always strange because they're always like connecting it off something that they base, but and they're like i don't like i don't like it I don't, I don't like it," and there's a lot of absolutely terrible slam poetry out there I mean I put on a show that has a slam in it for 20 years I've seen more god-awful poetry than any human deserves to and I've also seen some of the most flabbergasting powerful and profound pieces and and in in short small slots than most people would ever even know existed and I think a lot of it is for that capacity being able to express yourself in different ways I think that Performance poetry has gone in many different routes, and there's been many different kinds of flavors and genres. I think that when I was starting in 1999, it was a really awesome point where there were so many different styles of performers, of rappers, comedians, monologuists, uh, storytellers who were all converging at that time, and it was new. It wasn't, YouTube wasn't around yet, so... There was also a lot of sense of invention that we're all creating this genre and this style literally as we speak. And over time, I think what happens with genres is then people start to give it more rules and be like, okay, this is what it's supposed to sound like. This is what a performance poetry voice is like. And I think that a lot of this, the, the voice, you know, and that sort of style and cadence is, I just love lyricism. I love lyricism and I love elevated language. And I always will. So,
0: <laughs> no, I think that. Well, so, when I listen to slam poetry, and I'll admit, I'm kind of an elitist. Like, when, when I, I don't like when people throw around the word poetry without things actually being poetic. And when people say rap is poetry, It's like, well, no, not all of it. Some of it is, because some of it has that raw emotion that you're supposed to capture when you're talking about any art piece. And to that, I say, yeah. But a lot of people say like, oh, you know, it rhymes, so it's poetry. Well, then if that were the case, then Mother Goose and Dr. Seuss would be the greatest, you know, the greatest poets of all time. And we know that they're not. Those are children's rhymes. And so, you know, I think that there are a couple of these intangible elements that need to exist. And the way, you know, so when I hear your stuff, it sounds more like slam prose than slam poetry. Like these are great stories, that are told with passion and emotion, and there's a little bit of a cadence, you know, what what people who study poetry would call meter and you know meter, uh, and and so there's a lot of that, which is interesting, and that's what kind of makes rap interesting. If there is a meter to it, you know, I don't know if I don't know if you know Jay Z would say that he's he does his raps in iambic pentameter or anything, but but I think that there is a rhythm, which is what's what's kind of cool about poetry. But so so slam poetry, the way you describe it. It doesn't sound like poetry as much as it is expressing a story in a catchy way. Uh, You know, and I don't mean to, like, take a dump on it, but it doesn't, it's, is that, is that more of what it is than actual, like, poetry? I think it depends on the piece. I mean, I have pieces that are just straight up stories. Yeah.
1: I think that they have a poetic bent to them, but I mean, they are, like, The God and the Man, for instance, is a piece about... Uh, L. Ron Hubbard and my grandfather, L. Ron Hubbard, Jr. And it's, it's, it's a story. It tells a story, but it's also written a bit poetically. And every now and then has like a little slant rhyme in there or something like that, just just for my own self to keep its own kind of music to it. And then I have other pieces like The Girl in the Hallway, which is a straight story. Uh, straight story. And it's it's written... I guess poetically, but I mean, and then I have other pieces that are straight rhymes, you know, like bumping Uglies or brain Horror, but mm-hmm. I mean, just things that are just literally couplets and rhymes. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think it really just depends. And that's something that I love, though, about performance poetry. Someone could go up and do something that was absolutely bombastic and hilarious or anthemic, right? Write something that you're trying to get the whole audience to go bananas for and get roaring in unison. And then you can come up for the second round and maybe do something that is a dark, short story in three minutes that has a specific point, a moral, a twist, whatever that is. And there wasn't really, there was a a constant sense of encouragement towards that. If you went up and you basically just did the same thing every time, then a lot of rappers, for instance, knew that they had to switch up their style really quickly because they would actually come up and sound a bit monotonous because they didn't have a beat, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. So when you don't have a beat and you're literally just talking, it's the rules of theater applied, where it's all about how is your nuance, how are you changing it? If your meter is the same, if you come up and you're just rapping and everything sounds the same in the same note, um, then it's a lot... it, beca- it starts to become more monotonous than it would if you had music on. Right. Because again, it's the rules of theater. It's like, it's, it's conversation, it's dialogue. It's the oldest thing that there is. I mean, that's the other part of it, is that it's, it's literally the oldest thing that there is. Like performance poetry is probably the oldest art form that we possibly have. Someone comes up, they, they want to win some mutton shops for the evening. And so they're going to sing you a song, tell you a story. They're going to make some jokes whatever that is, maybe all of it in the same night, they're a troubadour, you know, they're, they're trying to get their, their, their hunk of meat by, by lyricism and, and telling stories. And so I think that that was, that was something that we were kind of constantly playing with mm. is doing a bit that was a bit more like stand up or a bit more like, um, uh, a bit more poetic, you know, but you would see people who come out of a college class and they have just taken their poetry unit and then they show up at the slam and they're like, I'm writing a poem, you know, <laughs> and you could see right away what kind of poem that they were trying mm-hmm. you know, they're trying to do, you know, are they trying to do a beat type poem. And I, I think that we were really sort of inventing a lot of that stuff. Not to sound too egotistical, but I mean, I think that the performance styles that I was seeing were very new. I mean, when you go back and you look at what you compare them to, it's like poetry was sort of a... Its own kind of umbrella uh, to a degree of performance poetry and so forth. But when you're up there on stage, you have to bust. You have to engage the audience. You have to grab them. You got to hit them in some way, whether it's jokes or passion or whatever that is. And so, yeah, it just goes all over. I mean, I've also shot, um, been the documentary director for the You Speaks Brave New Voices. Um, festival the last few years and so i'm also watching youth who are like 14 to 21 Mm -hmm. doing performance poetry and it's sometimes incredibly refreshing to watch them because they don't give a fuck about labels and (laughs) what a poem is and what a rap is like they don't give a fuck like they're there to say their shit and they will just absolutely blast. And whether that's a rant or it's funny or it's a rap or it rhymes or, you know, you can do whatever you want. There's a lot less rules, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which which is a good and a bad thing. I mean, if you're, if you're a comic, you have to at least be funny. Someone could say, I'm a poet, and that means, eh? Right, yeah,
0: you know? I don't know. yeah, and I think that that's kind of where it's kind of where my elitism kind of shows, but it's also, you know, it's also how my brain works, right. Like I think rules are in place for a reason, and rules are put into place so that not anyone can just walk off the street and do the thing because there there mm-hmm. are there are rules, right. And so I think when I hear people calling things that aren't poetry poetry, it's like, well, I'm not saying it's not good. I'm not saying that it's not interesting. I'm not Mm -hmm. saying it's not funny. It's not emotional, right? But like, you know, as you mentioned, uh, the God and the man, the reason why it's poetry is because it does have a meter. It does have a verse. uh, But it's also it tells a story on the surface level, but there's a deeper meaning that mm-hmm. makes you think about the, the our relationship to religion or relationship to cult leaders or to leaders in general. Mm-hmm. And it's that second and third layers that really make something art and poetry in my mind. And so, you know, I think, you know, I've, I've always loved comedy and I think stand up comics are, that is an art form, but just because you say something funny doesn't make that particular, it just makes it a joke. doesn't make it art. You know, and so Mm -hmm. I I like to see that stuff elevated. And I think rules are important to follow because those are the things that will ensure that you do reach for the, you know, the, the higher echelon of art form. And I think, you know, some people are just naturally talented and get it uh, on a level that maybe they're not as harnessed or as polished, but it's still really interesting. And I imagine that's what you see when you're working with the youth.
1: Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's like raw, raw, it's, it's, I love it. I mean it's it's crazy raw and there's a lot less filters, there's a lot less expectations and that's what we're pushing for though also. I mean one thing I always start off with the writing workshop is like you're not writing this poem for me. Like I'm not your teacher. This is not an assignment. You're writing this for you. If you think it sucks, it sucks. <laughs> so make it not suck. Right. Yeah. You know, make it un- make it unstuck. <laughs> Write something that you're excited about. Yeah. That's the thing because um that's that's where the the real energy is at you know you want to find that fire and what what is actually motivating you forward and, and the real excitement of that because otherwise it just becomes sterile and and who gives a fuck? you know that's a, that's a, i i guess i i mean i was just always sort of a mutant i just realized early on that i just really didn't enjoy just doing one thing and that's been a pro and a con of course but I mean, I, I just wasn't that interested in doing one thing. You know, I've, I have friends who have MFAs and things like that. And I just the idea of just writing poems only like over and over always just kind of broke my brain. I was like, oh, this can't be it. You know, that's why I love film, because film to me is sort of everything. That's why I find it to be like the ultimate art form. You can take those, you can write a poem and then turn it into a film and then incorporate all these other art forms as well into it. Yeah.
0: Well, I mean, Orson Welles, I mean, he said something along those lines and then also said that, you know, it's also the only art form where the artist can't afford the pieces to, can't afford the medium. So, I mean, that's an interesting part. Yeah. Yeah, Not true anymore, um, (laughs) but definitely true when, when it was actually filmed. No, it's true. It's true.
1: It's true. I I mean, here's that, Hey man, I've I've said this uh, so I didn't make it up. Somebody else has said they said uh, filmmaking is the cocaine of art because if you don't have the money, you certainly do not want to start. <laughs> and that's, I mean, it's true. It's, it's, it's really an endless hole. Yeah. Yes, I grew up with the whole scrappy Robert Rodriguez rebel without a crew, like you don't fucking need shit. Get a camera, go shoot your movie, yeah. and I did that. And I and I, you, yeah, you're gonna hit limitations. Like even the Robert Rodriguez, like whole story of the El Marachi, which is like kind of a indie filmmaker's Bible when we were coming up, even that some of that is, is a myth, you know what I mean? Yeah, like if yeah, yeah. the movie was bought and then they remastered right. it and they redubbed it. And then they put it on more expensive prints. Like it, there is always a technical aspect. I mean, I mean, filmmaking is where science meets art and equipment meets art. And so all of those elements, you know, you can, you can tell your story, but the problem is to get to that intangible, intangible crossover where your shit looks like a quote real movie where people will take it as a real movie is its own technical sort of steps that you have to take in order to get there.
0: No, it's it's ridiculous. I mean, people don't really realize all that goes into it, you know, I mean, because the adage that I've probably said multiple times <laughs> no. on the show is that the movie you, th- you, the movie you envision is not the movie you write, which is not the movie you shoot, which is not the movie you edit, which isn't the movie that you market, you know? I mean, it's every step of the way, right. the vision is getting altered and changed either creatively, uh, or, you know, it's mm-hmm. either getting formed by a creative body, you maybe, and people you want to bounce ideas off of, or it's being formed by mm-hmm. the technical limitations, both of your skill. And the limitations of the equipment itself, uh, you know, if Bob Ross, I love Bob Ross, by the way, but if Bob Ross wants to, you know, build a couple of happy little trees, he wants to paint a nice little portrait or a landscape. All he has to do is go out, look at a mountain, and his vision is immediately translated to the screen. He has the technical ability; he's got the paint. On That's right. Hand. It's instantaneous. Film is not like that, um, <laughs> no. you know. But but you know, one of the things I wanted to transfer into because you mentioned that you're mutants, uh, you're a mutant of art, and the slam Poetry, in a lot of ways, really, I mean, from what I can see, it really inspired what you're probably best known for, which is Tourette's Without Regrets. I don't know if you can say that anymore. I, I, I don't know if you had to rename it or anything, but that's what it's called. Um, <laughs> people are very sensitive nowadays. I can't keep track of, of what, what hurts everyone's feelings. Um, but you know, yeah, The show is now now christened re renamed.
1: Uh, the Ruckus and Rumpus Revival. Okay.
0: Is that is that a revival, like a religious revival? Is that an homage to that? Or is it just, you like the R's? what? <laughs> <laughs> Whatever kind of revival you want. Okay. <laughs> well, so this is, you know, this is a really cool s- show because it takes a lot of the slam poetry. But you know, when I'm hearing you explain what you what drew you to slam poetry and how you kind of define it, this seems to encapsulate a lot of that stuff, but also a lot more of the performance. It's vaudevillian, you know, it's a variety show, and you 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 know, you've described right. it as the Fight Club of underground art. Uh, you've also been quoted saying right. you felt like there's no place for the mutants of art and you wanted a clubhouse where you could put them all under one roof. Uh, This, you know, this has a... A really cool beginnings. You know, there are places where even your venues got shut down, you brought people to your apartment to perform. I mean, this seems like your passion and also the thing that allows you to do multiple different disciplines at the same time while running the show. And it's a lot easier because your vision is immediately translated. Uh, am I getting that right? Or do you are you still a filmmaker at heart?
1: No, that's about right. I mean, it's it's basically my film version of performance where <laughs> you're able to bring in all these elements and music and dance and physicality and circus and and to bring all of these elements in one room. I mean, after doing performance poetry and being on slam teams or you're going and you're competing against the other best slam teams in the world, I mean, mm-hmm. just going to a strict poetry show is gets a little sedate for me. I mean, at this point, I mean, also it's, it's like we're celebrating all these different kinds of art. There's poetry, but we also have freestyle rap battles. Those are also lyricists who are doing – improv lyricism over a beat and oftentimes in a competitive toe-to-toe manner. And we're celebrating that. We're celebrating comedy, which is also its own form of lyricism and writing, and celebrating breakdance and circus and burlesque and, you know, dirty haiku bouts. It's really just opening it up. So it's getting away from the limitations. I mean I feel a lot of a lot of poetry shows have a kind of self-reverent, you know, they have a very reverential view towards it, um, that it it can become, it can just become a real tea party. And that was something that I just wanted to get away from, at least with our show. We wanted to celebrate everything and, and have poems that hit hard, and also just have a large, raucous audience. I was getting a little tired of these poetry shows where all this energy goes into it, and then there's 40 people there and you're competing with an espresso machine like I want I want big (laughs) big and bold you know is is definitely an instinct and it's, it's all sort of converges in together I mean but yeah I would say that that the ruckus and rumpus is very much my kind of filmmaker's eye in terms of the world of performance I mean what I love about films is that you can combine all of these incredible talents in one one work of art you know someone's performance and someone's music someone's photography someone's lighting your editing instincts rhythm sound all of that stuff and combining it all together and so i mean it took me a long time to sort of realize that i always wanted something that was bigger than me um that i you know i know certain performers where it's it, it's all about them right it's it's all about what <laughs> it's all about their career what they're trying to do and their output and that is where it, it, it is all the focus is at and i just learned early on that that i wanted something that was bigger you know than just me than just being like this is everything jamie's got to say you know there's only so many things that i can say there's only so many things that i can do i sure as hell can't break dance i have done burlesque but i can't do circus although i've hosted circuses but i mean i'm not a contortionist you know etc so, like, I can insult people off the fly, but I'm not a battle rapper. But I love battle rap. And also was also just celebrating all these different art forms that I also love. You know, I love freestyle rap. I love comedy. I love poetry. I love circus. I love burlesque. I love interactive mayhem and combining all those things. And, yeah, I mean, we'll, we will see what the next era is after this unfortunate little detour into the Black Plague.
0: well I will tell you you know you talk about it in these elevated terms which I agree you know for most of that but I do also want to point out that I saw a clip of a Tourette's without regret show and it was called pantsless musical chairs which doesn't quite have you know that uh say quoi of <laughs> of poetry those are dumb, but yes, it was yeah those are dumb audience, hilarious by the way <laughs> they're dumb
1: audience warm-up <laughs> contests. those are yeah what, what's amazing is that we'll have lap dance contest during the show and that sounds so idiotic and juvenile on paper right and it was the very first time we thought of it we I mean not that we thought of it but I mean I did it as a, a random sort of impromptu thing to kill some time in between some stuff and it was just a thing that just jumped out but what I realized is that by having these kind of juvenile, childlike moments, you're also encouraging the audience to be involved, engaged, and to also play, to not take everything so fucking seriously and allow them to sort of be ridiculous. And also showcase, like when we have lap dance shows, like people will, the audience will roar louder for these audience interactive moments than they will for the most genius, versatile circus performer from Russia than they will for anything because they know it's live and they also know that that person literally was sitting right next to them they know that's a real person they saw me just literally grab them out of nowhere and that person went up there and just completely fucking rocked the house without having any warning that that's what they were going to do and those moments are absolutely exotic i mean how is that different than speaking in tongues and also that's the thing too is that like (laughs) I, I right. fucking hate all the bullshit pretensions of everything. Like, why not have that coexist at the same time with something that's powerful and serious and lyrical in the same night? I, I think that that's always been a problem is this kind of um, this reverence. I think reverence in and of itself is bullshit. Reverence is a form of control. <laughs> that's how the Catholic Church got to fucking rape so many children for fucking centuries is reverence. Hey, let's not talk about that. Someone could be like, oh, Jamie, you shouldn't even... That's a little harsh, you are talking about... No, fuck that. Like when you have a, a, an entity that is like essentially raping children as a franchise, you should talk about it on a regular basis. And also ask yourself, why does this shit still exist? It's, a lot of it is because of reverence. It's like, well, hey, let's, you know, that's a priest. No, it's not. It's a guy wearing a funny little robe. That's it. It's a costume. It is a costume that having things that are sacred... And what is sacred and what is profane is, to me, a very interesting question, right? Because who gets to decide that? Who gets to decide what is high art and what's lowbrow and stuff like that? I mean, I'm also elitist. Some people think that I am some sort of ridiculous, crude crude guy, and then they meet me off a show and they're like, oh, wow, you're like actually a really highly sensitive, arty nerd, and I'm like, what did you think I was? And I, I'm I'm saying that not to praise myself, but because this has been an unwelcome surprise um, for certain girls that I've dated who thought I was like some sort of <laughs> wild, voracious, like Jim Morrison and his drunkest, you know. And, and I'm like, no, I'm a I'm a writer and performer. I'm like, I'm constantly working on things. I a lot of times I'm introverted. I'm reading. I'm working on scripts. I'm writing. I'm editing, and and that sort of thing. And and I've always just wondered how i 've always just seen how when you have these kind of debaucherous celebrations that for some people you can 't coexist at the same time with things that have social impact that things that have um, deeper meaning and things that are are real as fuck and that 's always bothered me i 've always felt that there 's this a sense of like you should celebrate all of this at the same time, um, so damn it that 's my defense of the fucking list musical chairs. Um, that, <laughs> no, well, actually, I will say. I mean, the thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the 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 psychological trick of the musical chairs, actually, specifically, we always have a contest that is right after the duty haiku bout, and the goal of it is always to involve as many of the audience members as we can in a physical way, so also that they break out of the theatrical mode that they're used to of like I sit here I watch a thing on stage like we have a thing on stage and then I jump in the audience and I'm like the show is happening right here and you are in it you are the show and it really breaks people up and they start to really realize like oh we're all a part of this so it's it's a trick it's also a little device
0: I learned a few things in my years. No, well, I mean, it's, you know, I feel like I broke you with the Jamie Kennedy question and the pantsless musical chairs. And, you know, I love it. (laughs) You broke me. Bring it. You know, it's... I mean, in some ways, you know, this is your Scientology. I mean, this show is your Scientology. It's your gift to the world. The one question I didn't get to ask you uh, is about your great-grandfather who who drove a Greyhound bus. You mentioned that no one ever asks about him. Uh, I meant to ask about him and be that one guy, so I apologize that we didn't get to that. But if people want to find out that story or more about you uh, or more about Ayara, how can people get in touch with you? Twitter? Are you on social media? Websites? What do you got?
1: Uh, to be honest, I really hate Twitter. I, I guess I'm just on there like a old man standing at a party. But I really don't like it. <laughs> so, I mean, I guess I can't do Twitter. I'm on Instagram. and uh, But, I mean, the best is my website, jamiedewolf.com. And um, They can message me from there. It also has a gang of my films and shorts, a lot of which are criminally underseen. That would be awesome if people want to check out. But they want to see like dark comedies and all kinds of crazy stuff. There's all the goods is on there. But I'm um, easy to find, easy to get a hold of.
0: Well, I'll have all that stuff on the website, and you say it's criminally underseen. Well, I've gave, given them a couple of views this past <laughs> Thank week. so you. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll, get, we'll give them the old facet nouns bump. This has been a fascinating conversation, Jamie. I mean, you are the most multifaceted performer and you know, quite possibly the most unique person that I, I've ever encountered. Uh, you've got just a lot of really interesting—your uh, body of work is just fascinating, and uh, your life story is amazing. I'm surprised there hasn't been a biography on you, because this is a very unique story and you've got a very unique view of the world and your art shows that and it's just incredible stuff, Jamie. So thank you so much for being on the show today.
1: It was a pleasure. Uh,
0: and I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glencoe production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. the show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns Introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. Now, if you like this show, you got to subscribe. You can find us on all your favorite podcasting platforms. And if you're not already subscribed, I can help you out right there. Go to fascinatingnouns.com, and you can find links to every podcasting platform right there at the bottom of the page, and you can even follow us right there, right next to the podcasting platforms. Follow us on social media. You can find links to the show's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and YouTube pages all right there, fascinatingnouns.com. While you're there, why don't you check out some of my other episodes? we got all of them linked up, both categorized by guest and by number so no matter what you're into no matter what you like we've got an episode for you all right there fascinating and if you like this show you're gonna like everything that i do go to danieljglenn.com to find out more thank you for listening end of transmission